Hello, and welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. London is one of the most heavily surveyed cities in the world. And whilst the word surveillance used to bring to mind grainy CCTV, increasingly new technologies can precisely track your movements, identify you from the shape of your head, and predict where you're going to go. But how much will new surveillance tech impact our lives? Should we be worried about it, or will it help to reduce crime, cut waiting times, and even change the way we shop? With me to discuss all things surveillance, I have two very special guests. Kirsty Ball is Professor of Management at the University of St. Andrews. Hi, Kirsty. Hi, hi. How are you doing, Yelena? Good, thank you. And Peter Fussy, Professor of Sociology at the University of Essex. Hi. And you two both know each other. Peter, do you want to give us a bit of backstory? Yeah, so Kirsty and I have known each other for probably more than 20 years. There's a sort of small cabal of surveillance studies scholars that it's a very sort of nice sort of a group of academics quite nurturing quite friendly and I think I met Kirsty through that really. Yeah and we now co-direct the same research centre it's called the Centre for Research into Information Surveillance and Privacy and there's there's ourselves at St Andrews and Essex and also Sterling. Now let's come on and talk about surveillance it's a very broad term for close observation but Kirsty what can surveillance technologies currently do for us? Okay, so I like to think of surveillance in slightly different terms than close observation. I like to think about it as a principle along which our society is run. And that principle involves the collection, processing and application of information to shape what goes on. So we gather and use information for the purposes of power and organising and getting people to do things we want them to do. So surveillance processes are everywhere. They're part and parcel of business, government and also policing and security. In many ways, it facilitates those things. And it can it can make life better. It can make life more convenient and more safe. It's used to kind you kind of distribute products and services to determine financial kind of opportunity. Maybe shortlist you for a job now. Whether you get offered work if you're a gig worker. And the important thing to remember is that power always returns in favour of those who own the means of surveillance. And so we have to mm. ask really, how is that power wielded? Is it fair? Are people particular groups of people advantaged or disadvantaged by it? Are rights infringed? Is autonomy infringed? So really surveillance capacity is everywhere, but the, but the issue is how we challenge a question, that power that it engenders. And facial recognition technology in particular is a very key component in new surveillance tech. Peter, can you tell me a bit about biometric data and how it works? Yeah, sure. So I think the first place to start is to establish what we mean by biometric data, literally the metrics of the body. Actually, more recently, we've come to think of biometric data, not just in terms of our physical characteristics, be that DNA, fingerprints or face or voice, but also our emotions too. So we're starting to see development of things like sentiment analysis and AI-driven techniques to, to identify our mood and so on. Facial recognition, without getting too much into the weeds, it covers lots of different types of technology. When you open your iPhone, for instance, or go through an automated passport gate at the airport, that normally is matching your face to an image of you. It's what we call one-to-one -one matching. The more controversial and eye-catching forms of facial recognition are the things like live facial recognition. So that's when one individual walking down the street, their face is captured by a camera and compared to a database of you know several thousand people or 
in the case of Clearview Tech, about 20 billion enrolled subjects. So that's generally the difference between facial recognition. Obviously, there are differences in the sort of human rights implications if you're just matching yourself to yourself or yourself to a, to a big database of, of different individuals. Let's come back to airports because I noticed that Detroit Metropolitan Airport are now trialling new parallel reality systems where travellers can see their personalised flight information on a big screen. How does technology like that work? So that technology is is fascinating. So the way it works is it will personalise what you see by looking at one of the flight boards, depending on the individual and the direction um, that you're looking at. And the, the technology is genuinely fascinating. I think there's always really interesting questions to ask, though, with these sorts of technologies of what's the justification and the need. You know, one of the justifications for this technology is that it makes it easier for people to see what gate their flight is at and so on. You know, slightly facetiously, I'd argue if you can book a flight and get your way to the airport, you could probably work out from a screen where your flight is. So the justifications are kind of, it's almost like there's a tech solution and then a justification follows afterwards. And that's mm. quite an enduring theme that affects quite a lot of different different technologies. And I think the second sort of interesting thing there is the way in which different technologies get merged together. So there you have kind of digital elicitation of technology, which is, is genuinely incredible and interesting, matched with with facial recognition technology or whatever and often we see in airports that these are really a nursery for new surveillance techniques we often see them experimented and finessed in this context be that automated number plate recognition for instance first deployed in boston logan airport in, in the us so we often see airports really as the frontier of technology and security as pete just said it's this classic surveillance politics you know using a safety justification or a convenience justification to introduce a technology and, and you're kind of like well what, what's the what's the actual problem that this technology is there to solve people standing looking at their phones in an airport it's like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut and and if you're going if we're going to be using justifications for surveillance technology where's the human rights justification where's the privacy justification I mean, i've been in various European airports over the summer where you see actually quite clear notices about privacy next to things like body scanners or automatic facial recognition cameras or or something like that there and we don't see that here and we always see the same tropes around convenience and safety but what about rights? I noticed that Preeti Patel announced that by 2024, we would be trialling contactless corridors that travellers can submit biometric data before departure to avoid using e-passport dates or having to speak to border guards. This is a really good example, I think, to talk about those kind of contesting political and technological wills that you've been saying. So other than convenience, Kirsty, what would the benefit of something like this be for border security or what is the justification that's given for it? Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, there is something to say about convenience here because the timing of this announcement is absolutely spot on. What we just witnessed this summer, we witnessed airports with um, beset by staff shortages, massive queues. We've had ground handling organisations, airlines really struggling to actually recruit staff. Mm. And so then here you have a, a technology that might enable you to get rid of a load of staff. You know, we hear, well, we can we can get rid of border guards. We can like make make these massive savings on staff costs. So I do sound cynical, but that you know that convenience there's that convenience discourse justifying all sorts of different things but there's actually a really interesting history here to the way that the bordering has taken place in this country and in other countries around the world 
For about the last 20 years, the government has been trying to invest in various different schemes to streamline the border. It started, I mean, we'll be familiar with things like pre-clearance checks if you travel to the US, but we've had bordering experiments. There was one called the e-borders programme that was introduced in 2006, where they tried to get airlines to submit passenger data to what was then the UK border agency between 24 hours and 30 minutes of travel. And that completely fell over, first of all, because of the consortium of companies actually make, you know, producing e-borders orders were not very functional, but also half the airlines actually found it very difficult to get the passport data in on time because their supply chains were really long and their points of sale were all over the place. And so then we got to kind of scanning passports at, at gates uh, at the, to enter into the airport, which kind of replaced that. And this seems to be the latest move kind of away from that so we're embedding cctv or facial recognition cctv at head height we're getting people to give their data way 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 in advance so that then risky travelers can be preempted and identified and screened out of the process and, and yet it's under this discourse of convenience i'm fascinated by the concept of travel in this context the first time i remember coming into contact with what I would deem quite an intrusive security system was when I visited China in 2019. And your phone uses an app called WeChat, which is connected to your passport, which means that if you were to do anything forbidden, then you could have basically direct contact to your phone because the facial recognition would pick up on your passport picture. So a good example of this is I remember by the side of a road, they had this huge screen that if you were caught jaywalking, your picture would be projected onto this huge screen, almost as a form of social shaming. And then at the same time, you would get a fine sent through to your phone immediately. And I suppose in in the context of this discussion we're having here, I'm interested to know, do you think that the technological or the political drive comes first? Because we've spoken about those two things kind of interchangeably. I don't think there's one single kind of order there. I mean, you, you know, if you're, if you're looking around at, at new technologies that are being developed at the minute that like, say, for example, sensor technologies or Internet of Things based technologies, they are technological innovations and the people that develop these are interested in what they call technical efficiency so uh, the same is true with algorithm development you've got you know training data and you've got human decisions about best fit of algorithmic results from you know particular analyses and often it is about technical efficiency and effectiveness and best fit or some form of efficiency and then we start looking for applications, don't we? And, and actually, if we're thinking about these new technologies in purely technical efficiency terms, other things become sidelined, other questions become sidelined, such as ethics, rights, equality. And those are political just as much as authoritarian, control-based discourses are. So I think they kind of combine with each other to shape each other ultimately. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, I think one way that helps me think about this is that Technology is both political and politicised as well. So it's political in its application, you know, all of those issues of rights. And and often we have a very, I guess, utilitarian discourse around technology. You know, it's, it's best most people will support the police using this or that, which, you know, by doing that, you then obscure the minority rights and things like that. So there's a mm. political dimension. There's, you know, as Kirsty said about algorithm development, there's biases that are encoded into technology and, and, and so on. But it's also very politicised. You know, the last Tory manifesto for the 2019 
2019 election, you know, had all sorts of claims about how technology would solve the challenges of Brexit and, and so on, which, you know, haven't really come to fruition. So I think there's that it, it's useful to think about it in both those those terms. But also, you know, we can think of very sort of dramatic, you know, in, in your case, you know, very dramatic examples from China. But the same thing happens here, you know, in the pandemic, Derbyshire police was flying, were flying drones and publicly shaming people on social media for going about their lawful business and doing absolutely nothing wrong that mm. didn't break the law in any way whatsoever. So, you know, we see that same use of technology for shaming in, in this country too. Peter, earlier on, you mentioned a company called Clearview AI, and they were fined 7.5 million for obtaining over 20 billion images of people from online sources without permission. What do we need to know about the legal implications of using facial recognition? Oh, wow. So uh, how long have you got? I mean, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, so the, a lot of the work that, that we do in, in, the, in the projects I'm involved with is look at technology from a, a human rights perspective. And really, it's kind of, there's quite a handy shortcut to a lot of these issues one is you know there's generally three broad considerations and then there's lots of complexity around those but those three are is there a legal basis or an explicit legal basis is there a legitimate use of the technology and then is it necessary in a democratic society and often when we hear about facial recognition particularly law enforcement uses they talk about it being legitimate to use it we need to catch bad people it's always terrorists or or child protection issues normally is the justifying language and i think you know, the, the the police, it's legitimate for the police to use technologies. It's not really a debate, I don't think. But then the question becomes, is there a legal basis or is it necessary? Now, there was a, a court of appeal ruling on the legality of facial recognition in 2020, which said that, you know, South Wales police use of facial recognition was not in accordance with the law. There's no real explicit legal basis for it that protects people's rights. So it's it's hugely problematic and it, it's a real grey area. So I would argue that it's it's not that there's no explicit basis at the moment to do that. And then also when we think about is it necessary to use it, we can talk about the less intrusive means. And part of understanding whether something's necessary is understanding is it proportionate. So, you know, is it really proportionate to to scan the faces of everybody in the street against the database of 20 billion images, you know, for, for a particular reason? And, you know, generally that's quite a hard thing to, to justify. And then the really important thing, I think, to remember when we talk about facial recognition is, you know, and this was upheld in, in, a, in a district court and the Court of Appeal judgments that it's not just people who are being sought or, or suspects that, that whose, whose rights are at stake here. In fact, the rights of every single person who passes by these cameras are, are engaged in some respect. Mm. And that has all sorts of implications for chilling effects, freedom of assembly, association, freedom of expression, generally the functioning of democracy. You know, would you go on a protest, for instance, or, you know, or articulate the current moment Republican views if you knew there was facial recognition technology or clear view being used? So, there's all sorts of implications and I would argue not only is there not really an explicit legal basis of any quality for it but also we think about these things in terms of data protection which is just mm. such a narrow 
and flimsy uh, way of trying to understand the range of harms that can come from these technologies. Kirsty, at the start of this, you mentioned about the power dynamics and structures. And I think often when we think about surveillance or when we have thought about surveillance in the past, we think of something that targets powerful people. I'm thinking about the Pegasus Project, the scandal in which an Israeli company used spyware to access the personal data of journalists and politicians. I think more recently, it's been interesting to follow how actually this is being used on a much wider scale now. I remember in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, there was a big wave of women deleting their period tracking apps to safeguard their own reproductive data. What can we do to protect ourselves from how our data is being used? I think in general, in, in relation to your mobile phone, particularly in relation to, you know, apps allied to things like period apps where we monitor our bodily rhythms or hormones or moods and store that on our phones. I would just think very carefully about doing that because if we look at some of the privacy policies that are there uh, in relation to these apps, they are quite vague about the data they collect and how they're used. So read reviews of apps, first of all, not only just in terms of the functionality, but also the privacy. And the Mozilla Foundation produces a report called Privacy Not Included, which evaluates privacy policies of each app. But the the kind of the, the computer press generally kind of sort of promote different ways in which you can kind of privacy audit your phone. So the publication, Computer World, says things like get rid of apps you don't use regularly, check which apps have access to your Google and Apple email accounts because those are shared across platforms and make sure you refuse the access because that that will limit data sharing. For the apps that you do use, check permissions, check the location permissions particularly, take the notification content off your lock screen because that can be like a proximity thing. Someone next to you can read that. You could turn off Google ad personalization, use a VPN to protect from outside interference, um, maybe add encryption to sensitive files, wipe cookies from your browsing history, um, use privacy conscious email apps such as ProtonMail or FastMail. There's actually quite a, a lot you can do and you can probably do that fairly quickly, but I personally would be quite wary about storing bodily information on my phone. I'll be honest, yeah. The Home Office and the Ministry of Justice are planning to use smartwatches that will require migrants convicted of crimes to scan their face up to five times a day. Campaigners say that this kind of 24-hour surveillance is a breach of their human rights. Pete, what do you think? What are the ethical implications of these kind of advanced surveillance technologies on vulnerable groups? Well, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, leave it aside the point that migrants are criminalised anyway, for in, put in you know detention centres and so on. And, you know, technology is often implicated in very sordid politics of blaming minorities for their own disadvantage. And I think we're, we're seeing another example of that. You know, one thing I would say about this particular case, now I had a role a few years ago as leading an independent review of the Met Police trials of facial recognition technology and in those operations so it went on quite a lot of facial recognition operations and in those operations the the police had the highest spec camera optics you could possibly buy massive cameras with amazing optics you know and still the technology was pretty you know it, inconsistent so having it in the smartwatch you know is, is going to be challenging i think and 
you know, I wonder as well the timing of it, you know, kind of the way in which a lot of political messaging has been around high profile technology blaming migrants. You know, it, it really does play into, you know, quite a mainstream narrative at the, at the moment. And I wonder whether it will come to fruition. I mean, facetiously, when I read it, I wondered uh, which civil servant had swallowed the marketing brochure of a, <laughs> of a tech company, essentially. And and also, you know, the main players in the facial recognition space are by, by a long way are the Japanese company NEC and this company I can't remember the name but they weren't very well established either so you know I wonder about the technical capability and that it will be you know if you unlock an iPhone it's one thing but like monitoring offenders is a different level of yeah. security that's required so so I wonder about technical capability and it just seemed to be playing to the gallery I'd, I'd be interested to see like many such proclamations if it actually turns into reality. That's really interesting because there have been a lot of issues around surveillance tech that can't adequately identify, for instance, darker skinned people or women due to algorithmic biases. Kirsty, why do these biases exist? Oh my goodness me. So I think we've alluded to some of those, uh, some of those processes already. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier about the kind of the human decisions which are involved in the design and operation of algorithms and, and the kind of profile of those people who are involved in, in, in those particular decisions and, and design processes. I think of your classic computer engineer, what kind of person do you think of? There's also issues around the data, the training data for these things perhaps is out of date, perhaps not representative of the population. So, you know, we hit, you see those media reports of, Amazon, for example, rejecting all female applicants because the job was only held by men in the past or Google only showing high paying jobs to males. And there's there's countless other more problematic, perhaps more racialized aspects of things like facial recognition technologies and the kind of algorithms that drive them. There's also an interesting postscript to this issue of training data as well. So Madhu Mergia at the uh, Financial Times done some really interesting reporting on when you've got Chinese facial recognition tech companies that then as part of their infrastructure project in the global south, particularly in, in Africa, have been gifting surveillance technologies. So there's a company called Cloudwalk in Zimbabwe, Huawei in, in Uganda, for instance, so it can then train on African faces right. and then be re-imported and resold back into you know diverse metro metropolitan cities such as London, New York or, or, or whatever. So there's an interesting sort of postscript to this issue of, of training data. Will or have these biases led to increased tensions between minority groups and the police, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, yeah, it's beyond, beyond question. And, you know, I think it's, there's different types of biases that, that feed into this. So if you take something like facial recognition, it's not just the tech performance, it's that the, you know, the databases that police use will reflect the intensity of police activity. You know, we saw this, a, a good parallel was the, the Met Police Gang Matrix, you know, Amnesty International released a report on this, I think back in 2017, 2018, you know, you have a, a database of suspects uh, people suspected being in gangs, you know, 90 plus percent of which are, are young black males and so on. So you see biases in terms of the, the data that's being, being held. And, you know, again, back to this point about the utilitarian way in which we see technology as, you know, being of a, a kind of societal benefit, it really obscures you know, the rights of those on the margins of society, those who are disadvantaged. And yeah, so, you know, we've just done, we're finishing up a study looking at the chilling effects of surveillance amongst over police groups in New York City. 
And it's really interesting. We did a parallel study in East Africa, and you can kind of see some of the dynamics of the kind of the, the psychological, social psychological impacts, things like vicarious trauma, for instance, lack of the erosion of interpersonal trust, the ability of democratic sort of groups to, to organize and things like that that happen in authoritarian regimes you see the same impacts in liberal democracies as well so you know and, and added to that you know there's also when you start over policing particular areas it's not just about you know politics and equality and fairness in that way there's a really strong public health angle as well there's been some really good sort of epidemiological research again in new york city on sort of mental health implications of these things as well so so it's, yeah it's, it's fundamental because you know it doesn't matter what anybody says you know the, the application of security policing and technology is not even it, it falls most heavily on on very very well defined groups mm. just look at the stop and search statistics in england and wales you know you've got young black men way more likely to be stopped more likely to attract the gaze of things like a cctv operator you know there's there's the accusations of institutional racism to start with which have been you know reflected in the in the news very recently actually so there's always going to be that tension there but again in, in the u.s context there's some really interesting campaigns been going on such as the algorithmic justice league and there's lots of films to watch around this to kind of become more educated and aware of what's going on a film called coded bias which is by the algorithmic justice league the artist Manu Luksh, who's done a film based actually in East Africa called Algorithm. There's a Canadian artistic collective called Ukai Projects, exploring people's experiences of actually facing up to some of these, these algorithms in their daily lives through mechanisms like doing zines and small art projects like that. So there's lots to learn and become aware of in relation to some of these very on the ground instances and, and effects around it, the institutional racism, the kind of thing that, that Pete was just talking about in relation to mental health, for example. I could talk to you both for hours. I'm both horrified and fascinated at exactly the same time. Kirsty and Peter, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks very much. And listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Yelena Sofronievich signing out of the bunker. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jelena Sofronievich, the producers Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, group editor Andrew Harrison, and theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production 